thank you very much, Claire. Uh, I feel honored to be here on your last Sunday. Uh, it's been a it's been a real delight to serve alongside Claire for the last five months, and I know that she's going to be missed here uh, greatly. Like, like she said, I'm Andrew Campbell. I'm a fellow. I serve primarily at the Leewood campus. My wife, Beth, and I, uh, I think there's a picture. Yeah, we, uh, we lived in Kansas City for a couple years after graduating from K-State in 2008. Uh, we then moved to Chicago for three years. That's where I went to school. She worked in the city, and now we're back uh, here in Kansas City and really found a home at Christ Community. And I want to apologize up front. Uh, I've got, I'm working on this thing in my throat, and so apologies if I turn and get a, a drink of water. I'm sorry, but you have to listen to it. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But anyways, Beth and I, just to give you a glimpse of who, of who we are, we, uh, we, we enjoy doing many things together. One thing is, of course, watching K-State sports, especially in the fall and in the winter. Uh, we love seeking out new places to eat in the city, and you all are in a great spot right here, really good restaurants. We, that's a hobby we picked up in Chicago, and we love doing that together. We also love playing games together. We uh, really enjoy having folks over for a game night. Uh, that's just a real passion of ours, and we love opening up our home to do that. Uh, but one thing we don't do together is run. We do not run together. Beth hates it with a pure and holy passion. She hates running. Uh, she loves doing other types of physical activity, but we don't run together. And I've run in several long-distance races. I actually enjoy it. Uh, a couple marathons, a half marathon. It's, it's fun for me. And we've been talking a lot the last several weeks about Christian endurance, about perseverance, about finishing the race, and other metaphors that just make you tired listening to them, thinking about them. And one thing I've learned is that the beginning of the race really is relatively easy. That's the easy part, right? It's fun, even. It's an exciting stretch of the course. But finishing the race, staying with it to the end, that's the hard part. That's where it takes some endurance. And in a sense, that's, that's one of the primary lessons of the book of Hebrews. Becoming a Christian might have been hard for some of you, but for many of us, I mean, that's, the exciting, that's an exciting time, right? Coming to know the Lord. But ask anyone, staying a Christian, that's the hard part, right? It's a long race. It takes endurance. The Hebrews author has spent chapter upon chapter convincing us that Jesus is not only true and better, but that he's worth waiting for, that he's worth persevering for. And yet he knows that even the strongest of us are just a few decisions away a few life circumstances away from abandoning him, from throwing in the towel and calling it quits. And that's why he keeps warning us. That's why he keeps encouraging us, because we're all capable of that. You are. I am. We're all capable of throwing in the towel. Two weeks ago, we saw that the Christian life is like a race, and we can look to Jesus as the one who's run it before us and is seated at the finish line. In many ways, verses 1 and 2 highlight our own individual role in our formation of faith, this laying aside of our sin and distractions, these weights, and looking, setting our gaze on Jesus. Last week, we heard that God disciplines his own for, his, for their good as his children, 
And endurance in the midst of this training is the necessary response. So discipline is God's activity. You know, we have a role in our faith formation, and God has a role. It's this this, this discipline that's highlighted in verses 3 through 11. And as we come to verse 12, we return to this race metaphor, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on. But in the opening verses, we see this race metaphor, and we return to it in 12, and it's here that the author introduces this third player in our formation of faith, and that's the role of the community. The role of the community. It takes a village to form us into the likeness of Jesus. He wants us to remember that one of the most powerful antidotes to falling away, to growing weary and numb toward Jesus, to abandoning him and returning to a lifestyle that we know is wrong, is not just my faith, not just your faith. If I'm going to make it, I need much more than my faith. I need your faith. I need your faith. And you need mine. And the people sitting around you need yours. And you need theirs. If you've got a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and find verse 16. Or sorry, find verse 15. Verse 15. This is essentially how the author summarizes this idea. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Which is another way of saying to the church, it is your responsibility to cultivate and protect not only your own faith, but the faith of those around you. When I was training for the Chicago Marathon, one of the best decisions I made was to join a team and run with other crazy people. I mean, it was one of the best decisions I made. I went on long runs with that team every Saturday morning for 18 weeks. It was glorious and terrible all at the same time. And I'll just say this. I wouldn't have finished some of those runs without the encouragement of that team. There's no way. And I definitely would not have finished the race. Some some of those mornings, they needed me to be the pace setter and to be the one that was encouraging them to push through. I've done those long runs alone, and they're not fun. And the stakes are even higher for us in the Christian life, right? We need to push each other to endure. A high five here, a kick in the butt there. It's a team effort. We need one another. It's our job to make sure that no one drops out. Sure, I'm responsible for my own faith journey, but so are you. It's not just the pastor's job or the elder's job or your community group leader's job. The call is addressed to everyone. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. So how do we do this? How does your faith help me endure? How does my faith keep you on track? And that's that's where we're going to go for the rest of our time this morning. But let's pause here and just pray that God would speak through his word. Father, we are grateful for this beautiful space to worship you, to gather together as your church, Lord, and sing about your faithfulness, about our need for you. God, thank you that you've called us together in the body. Lord, I pray that whatever I say uh, this morning that's of me would fall away and be quickly forgotten, but where I speak your words after you, God, I pray that there would be 
clarity and conviction that your spirit would work and do mighty things in our lives to change us more and more into the likeness of your son. God, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the author gives us two specific things that I need from your faith if I'm going to to endure. Two specific things that you need from my faith if you're going to make it. First, I need your faith to fight for mine. I need your faith to fight for mine. Let's pick it up at verse 14, where it says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The language of strive here is really good, uh, but it's actually a, a bit stronger than that. It's a little more physical and aggressive. It's sometimes translated for persecution. And I think the word fight captures this idea a little bit more fully. Fight for peace with one another. But that seems a little bit counterintuitive to us, right? Fight for peace. We often think of peace as maybe a little bit more passive than that, as a passive existence with others, or maybe, maybe just an isolated one. We're at peace if we don't bother each other, if we're trying not to step on one another's toes. Or maybe it's not so passive, it's just isolated, right? Peace is the result of, or it's, it's not isolated, it's just positive. It's the result of you and me making each other feel good or happy, right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, we're at peace. I'm tempted to think this way in marriage, Parents and teens, do you, can you relate to this kind of understanding of peace? Bosses, employees, brothers and sisters, I mean, really any relationship, the list could go on. We want our peace to be, well, peaceful. But fight, that sounds like conflict, like struggle, like it's probably not as neat and clean as we'd really like it to be. And I hate conflict. I hate it. You can ask Beth. I, it's, you know, I, I'm actually uncomfortable talking about it right now, to be honest. I hate anything that sounds like struggle with other people. But peace doesn't just happen, especially if you're living in any kind of authentic relationship with other people. Relationships just aren't that tidy. They're messy. If we're being real with each other, we'll step on toes. We may even stomp on toes. Our pride, our envy, our anger, our jealousy, our selfishness, they all get in the way of our peace. It isn't just being nice to one another. and It's not the absence of conflict, like I, I often think of peace as, the absence of conflict. It's not that. But it's the presence of God's love in the midst of the mess. That's true peace. Sometimes we think we have peace, but what we really have is a social club. Right? We surround ourselves with people that we like, with people who are like us. And then when someone hurts us in church or disappoints us, we just avoid them. Or we make new friends. Or we bail and we find another church. Really, though, this church is it's less like a social club and more like a family. You know, you don't get to choose your family, and you really, it's really tough to get rid of them, Right? Uh, I, re- I recently spent a long weekend with extended family, and let me tell you, it's a fight for peace with family. And these Christians that the author of Hebrews is speaking to, they didn't have that luxury either. 
right? They didn't have a social club they could choose. There was one church in town. You know, look around the living room. That was it. This, this is who you got. They only had each other. They didn't choose each other. God chose them. That's the peace that we're talking about. And there's peace possible in that space that only Jesus can make happen. Because everyone here, not just the people that are like us, who we like, but everyone is so loved that God was willing to die for them. Everybody here is so loved that God was willing to die for you. There's no room for insecurity, no room to leave anyone out. We're all loved that much. But everyone here, not just the people we struggle with or who disappoint us, everyone is so broken, so sinful, that God, that Jesus had to die to rescue us. There's no room for arrogance or pride or self-righteousness or unforgiveness. We have to fight to remember this because, or peace just becomes impossible if we don't remember that we're so loved that God was willing to die for us and that we're so broken that he had to. But God loved us even though we disappointed him. And that's how peace with him is possible. Peace must be fought for, and we can't do it alone. So are you fighting for peace here with others in this community? Do you complain or do you build up? Are you self-righteous or concerned for others? Are you judgmental or quick to forgive? Will you leave when things get really tough or will you stick it out and work with others? Our faith needs each other to fight for peace. But that's not all we need to fight for together. Peace isn't enough. We must also fight for holiness. We must also fight for holiness. Now, holiness literally means to be set apart. Specifically set apart for God. Sanctified. And we've seen this already in Hebrews, that we've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice has made us holy. That's true for those who are in Christ. You are holy, blameless, acceptable to God, set apart for His service. And that's beautiful truth, friends. And you could be thinking, wait, me? Are you serious? These people? This guy? Like you? Holy, blameless? And that's the tension, isn't it? It's one of the great paradoxes of Christian life. Our position before God is secure, but the process of being made holy goes on for a lifetime. Because let's face it, our lives do not reflect who we are in Jesus right now. Not fully. We've got a long way to go. It's a fight to live it out. And that's what this training process is all about. Our formation into the image of Jesus. Into His likeness. It's actually the process of becoming who you already are in Him. That's encouraging truth. And it's going to take effort. This fight, this pursuit of holiness must be powered by the Spirit and rooted firmly in the gospel of grace. But it's going to take hard work, blood, sweat, and probably even literal tears. As author Kevin DeYoung has put it, anything, almost anything is easier than growing in godliness. (laughs) I think that's true. 
I've experienced that in my own life. But hearing hard work and holiness in the same breath makes some of us squirm a little bit, right? We're uncomfortable with anything that sounds like we can do it all ourselves. And it probably should. But we need to remember, grace is opposed to merit, not effort. We can't earn anything before God. But that doesn't mean we don't strive for a godly life. That we don't put forth effort and hard work towards godliness. Right now, some of you are hearing me say, I just need to work harder at X in my life. I just, you know, you thought of that thing that you need to work harder at. And that might be true. If, that, if that's what's going on in your mind, let the Spirit work on that. But sometimes it actually means this. I'm so weak in this area, I need another person to be strong for me. That's 90% of the Christian life, I think. And here's the unique thing about this passage. We're not just being called to fight for our own holiness. We're being called to do this for one another. We need each other. You might be even getting tired of hearing that from this book. It's almost like it's really important. We need each other. One of the best pieces of wisdom that I received in seminary is from a professor who was quoting an old pastor, Robert Murray McShane, who said, the greatest need of your church is your own personal holiness. That's good. That was well received. It came at a time when I really needed to hear that in the midst of seminary training and study, that my own personal holiness is what the church really needs. But that's not just for pastors. That's for all of us. That's our greatest need is for one another's holiness. We need to see Jesus. You know, the way you live paints a picture of Jesus, right? Your neighbors see it. Your friends see it. Your kids see it. Your church sees it. And we need to see it. I need your holiness. Your roommate needs it. Your coworkers need it. Your parents need to see your holiness. Your spouse, your pastor. We all need each other's holiness. You might be the best or only representation of Jesus that anyone ever sees. That's a sobering thought, but I think it could be true. And it's a prerequisite, this holiness. It's a prerequisite for seeing God. You can see that in the text. Without holiness, no one sees God. That's real talk. That's a bigger deal than many of us are willing to admit or accept. Without holiness, no one sees God, period. Are you engaged in a fight for your own personal holiness? How are you fighting for the holiness of others? I was working on this part of the message this week, and I looked down at my phone and saw that I was getting a call from a friend who I've committed to hold accountable in different areas of his life, and he's done the same for me. And my first thought, no way. I don't have time. I'm too busy. It's been a long week. You know, I I need to work on this sermon. Uh, You know, he can deal with it, blah, 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 right? I was writing at that very moment about fighting for holiness for other people, seriously. And my first reaction was, I don't have time for that. So I answered it. And it was a great conversation. It was mutually fruitful. 
and I got a sermon illustration out of it, which is you know, a win-win situation, I would say. But the point is, it takes time and effort and courage and honesty to fight for holiness, especially on behalf of other people. It takes giving people permission to confront you about your stuff, about the way you live. And it takes the courage to confront them. That might even be harder, to confront others about where you see they might be off track. Are there people in your life right now who have permission to fight for your holiness, to confront you, to be honest with you? Is there anyone at church right now where you know it's your mission to help keep them holy, right? To fight for their holiness. Because that's the call. And the stakes are high. They aren't going to make it if you aren't fighting for good things for them. For peace and for holiness. And they aren't going to make it if you aren't watching out for the bad things. Protecting them, even from themselves. I need your faith to fight for mine. But I also need your faith to watch out for mine. I need your faith to watch out for mine. Specifically, two things in the text that we need to watch out for. First, I need you to watch out for complacency in my life. For complacency. Look at verse 15. It says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You might be wondering, where does, uh, I didn't see complacency, I didn't see that word, uh, where does that come from? And that's a good question. That's uh, a little tricky. If you're reading the ESV, you'll see that the phrase root of bitterness is quoted. It's in quotation marks. And they're trying to clue you into the fact that the author here is quoting an Old Testament story, specifically Deuteronomy 29, uh, where Moses says this, and stay with me, it's a little longer, uh, but he says, beware lest there be among you a man or a woman whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. So beware if you see anybody turning away to idolatry. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, and here's, pay attention here, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe even though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. See, this passage is warning about the person who, even in the midst of sin, even if they're cheating on their spouse, stealing at work, lying to their parents, caught in addiction, even if they're in the midst of all this disobedience, they still listen to this voice inside of them that says, I'm okay. I don't need, I don't need to change. I'll be fine. I don't need others. This is a bitter-tasting person. That's a bitter root that produces harmful, poisonous fruit. Watch out for people who think they're okay in the middle of sin. Who think they have it all figured out. That's the definition of complacency. And it's deeply contagious. When we live on in complacent disobedience, we assume God's grace. And when we assume it, we belittle it. And if you belittle God's grace long enough, you'll begin to actually believe that you don't need it. 
And this attitude in a community of faith is a disease. According to the Old Testament here, he's reminding them what this disease did to the Israelites. And in fact, it destroyed them. And he doesn't want to see the church repeat the same mistakes. So are we on the lookout for this contagious complacency in ourselves and in others? One of the most dangerous places you can be in your faith is when you think you're either immune to God's judgment or that you aren't even capable of making incredible mistakes that could destroy your life. It's the thought that, well, I don't need help because I'd never do anything like that. I'd never have an affair. I'd never cheat on a test. I'd never turn to drugs for relief. I'd never look at porn. I could never do that. If you believe that, then you probably don't know yourself as well as you think you do. Another characteristic is a fierce independence that never lets anyone else be right or call you out on anything. If you find as a trend that you are never wrong and that other people are the source of all your problems, watch out. Heed the call from this author of Hebrews. Take steps now to watch out for this complacency. This is a real struggle for you, and it is for me sometimes. Meditate on your character flaws, but remember, God knows all of that about you and loved you enough to die anyway. But don't ignore how weak and how feeble we are and how flawed we really are to the core. You and I are more sinful than we could possibly know. We're capable of anything if not for the grace of God. Get other people in your life who have permission to get in your face. I mean, it won't feel good, but it can save an entire church. A root of bitterness can take down a whole community of people. You can see that in the text. It can defile a whole group. It has defiled whole churches. This isn't just your faith at stake. It's mine. It's the person's next to you. It's your family's, your children's. We need your faith. Watch out for complacency and let others help you in your fight for faith. The second thing that we need to watch out for is foolish indulgence. Foolish indulgence. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So Esau is an Old Testament character. Uh, there's actually no story of him uh, being explicitly sexually immoral. So lots of people, lots of scholars think that the author is using a Greek word here, pornos, to mean all kinds of appetites that we are susceptible to, that we might indulge in, that cause us to turn away or abandon God. Sex is one of those. Greed is another. Comfort, power, whatever it is. The author here uses the story of Esau to illustrate the point. So Jacob and Esau are brothers, twin brothers, they're Abraham's grandsons, and Esau was the firstborn, but Jacob's the one who would become the father of the nation of Israel. 
But in a culture where the firstborn always receives the inheritance, always receives the blessing, how does Jacob become the father, the one that receives the blessing? How does Jacob come out on top? Well, Jacob was a bit of a trickster, and Esau was a bit reckless. Uh, you could read about it in Genesis 25, but you know, one day Esau's out hunting and Jacob's in cooking. Esau bursts in exhausted. He says, I am dying of hunger, and that soup smells delicious. Jacob says, no soup for you. <laughs> that didn't go as well as I thought it would. But it was right there. I, couldn't, I really couldn't resist it. Uh, Jacob says, but I'll trade you. I'll trade you some of this soup for your birthright. You know, I'll give you a bowl of this French onion uh, if you give me all the rights as the firstborn. And Esau says, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And that's exactly what happened. Esau traded something of immense, lasting value for something so insignificant in the long run, but so immediately gratifying in the moment. And that's the point. All of us are like Esau, or at least have the potential to be. Foolishly indulgent. We're all capable of trading it all in for something that stupid, that fleeting. Every one of us has something, something that we would trade it all in for. What is it for you? Seriously, if someone sat down across from you right now, what would it take to trade in your spiritual birthright? This inheritance that we have in Christ. How about success? Or loads of money? Or health? Or safety for your kids? Sex? Happiness? Leisure? Beauty? Talent? Success? Status? I mean, that's, that's 10 or 11. I mean, there's, there's countless. There are countless things that we might trade it in for. In fact, I think we, we do this maybe a little more often than we realize. Maybe we wouldn't sell out in one fell swoop like Esau, but how about one, one small decision here? One little compromise there. After all, you don't need the whole bowl, bowl of soup at one time. It just takes one bite, and then another, and then another. I mean, left to myself... I'm going to choose the soup. That's just, I know myself. I have chosen the soup before. Trading that which is of infinite value and infinitely satisfying for that which is absolutely fleeting and turns out to be empty in the end. It wouldn't be the first time for me. Watch out for foolish indulgence in your life, and in the lives of others. I need your faith, or I'll forget that Jesus is true and better. I'll forget who I really am, holy and blameless before God. I'll forget what life is all about, that, this, that we've been called to run a race with endurance. I'll lose sight of the goal, lose sight of Jesus, who's seated at the finish line. But here's where we have hope. At the end of the day, this community, this church, is only as strong as the one who made it. And the person who made this community literally built the church. 
these people. He, he died and rose again. His victory is already our victory. His birthright is our birthright. Our strength is His strength. And one of the primary ways He gives us strength is through one another. Back in my college days, I had the privilege uh, of visiting beautiful Sequoia National Park in California. I don't know if anybody else has been out there to see the redwoods. They're amazing. The park is absolutely breathtaking. You know, majestic mountains, these rolling foothills, and the largest trees in the world. These trees are over 300 feet tall, and some of them 25 feet in diameter. And they've been around for thousands of years. Some of them were saplings when the Hebrews author penned this sermon. That's, that's mind-blowing. That is, talk about endurance, right? But here's the fascinating thing about these huge trees. I just assumed that a living organism that big, that wide, with that much mass, would need deep, deep roots to stay upright and nourish, right? But that's not the case. Sequoia roots aren't particularly deep at all. In fact, the main root system typically only goes down about 6 to 12 feet in the ground for a 2 to 300 foot tree. That's remarkably shallow. But their lateral reach often exceeds 100 feet, intertwining with these other root systems that provide excellent balance and stability. You know, the trees couldn't, they couldn't survive alone. They'd, they'd fall over in, in the first windstorm or violent firestorm. They need each other to grow and to thrive and survive. It's their interconnectedness that allows them to flourish. Redwoods have endured for thousands of years, not in their individual strength, but in their collective strength. What a beautiful picture that is of what God intends for his family. None of us are particularly strong. I mean, I am, me, I'm weak. But together... Well, that's a different story, right? We're the body. The church is one of the only things that's as old as these sequoias, these redwood trees. And friends, that's why we're here. This is why we gather, why we've done so for thousands of years, and why we'll keep doing it until Jesus returns. I want to make it. And I have no illusions about it. I need your faith. And you need mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've called us together in community. It's not neat and clean. It's messy sometimes. But God, you've called us to fight for peace, and you've made it possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. You've called us to holiness, and you've made that possible. We are holy in your Son. God, thank you for that truth pray that we would strive, that we would fight, that we'd watch out for these things in one another, that we'd be careful in the way that we walk, and that we would endure in this race. God, thank you for this morning. I pray that the rest of our time would be a sweet offering of praise to you. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the ways the church has strengthened one another for centuries is through the taking of the Lord's Supper together. The bread and the cup are tangible reminders of Christ's sacrifice, which, which makes us holy, which makes peace possible. 
We proclaim the gospel to one another in this moment as we take the bread and take the cup together. So all those who have trusted Christ uh, are invited to come to the table. If you haven't done so, take this time to consider these claims, the claims of Jesus. Take time to meditate and maybe pray that God would change your heart in these moments. There's stations around the room. There's four. There will be two up front and two in the back. And there's one uh, gluten-free station in the back as well. Uh, Please make your way down the side aisles. And then as you come back, after you've gathered in groups of four to six, you'll dip the bread in the cup. uh, Take it together. When you're finished, just make your way back down the center aisles. Also, if you desire, there will be folks back in the sound booth who would, be, who would love to pray with you. If there's anything on your heart at all that you would like prayer for, just go back to the sound booth and take, that time, take this time uh, in prayer. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For, not, for as often as you take the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come, take and eat, and proclaim the Lord's death to one another. Please come.